You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. Uh, That can be found on page 772 in the Black Bibles underneath your seats. Um, So yeah, if you'd read with me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that, my, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Pray with me. Lord, God, Father, we come to you today uh, grateful for this morning, grateful for the opportunity to worship you, to align our hearts Uh, with your heart. God, we thank you for your son, for who he is and what he has accomplished for us and for anyone who believes in him. God, we pray that we would know you more. We pray for your word to to pierce our hearts, to bring light to the dark places within us. God, we pray that you would help us to be more like Jesus. You would conform us to his image. God, I pray for the message that you just allow Um, it to be clear and just to, yeah, encourage us and challenge us to to live more like you want us to live. God, I pray for uh, this middle school. Lord, I pray that you would be working here, God, that you would have your hand upon this place um, and that men and women, staff, administration, um, and students would come to know you. I pray that the gospel would go forth, God, um, that people would turn from sin and trust you here. I pray that you would allow us opportunities to share and love and, uh, yeah, engage with the, with the people who come to this school five days a week. God, I pray that you would do more than we could ask or imagine, um, and you would just move in this place um, and bring people from, from darkness to light. God, we pray and just thank you for who you are, uh, that you've blessed us with so many things in Christ. Um, and you've blessed us so that we could be a blessing to others around us. God, help us to do that today and just encourage us through your word. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. 
Uh, my name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Um, and more importantly, uh, my uh, soccer team is undefeated still, and we ended the season. Far more important. It's actually about the kids having a good time. It's not. Um, but uh, man, if you're with us for, for the first time, man, we're glad you're here. You know, something you're going to see in this text is uh, as we get to the end, it starts to talk about, man, what are we supposed to be like for, for one another? And it lays down some like kind of guidelines or, or rules to say, as the people of God, man, we're to seek and accept one another and to bring in and to fight our own sin and, and to care about the sin in, in one another's lives. It, it wasn't too long ago, um, I mean, someone was asking about our church and they asked, hey, are you guys um, a, a seeker church? And uh, those kind of questions are always kind of loaded uh, because it, you know, it's trying to say, hey, do we care about lost people outside of us or do we take the Bible seriously? And I want to say, man, yes, yes, we, we want to teach through the Bible to show a beautiful Jesus that our hearts might just learn to trust that God has made quick atonement for us. And so the reason why we kind of just walk through the scriptures and just kind of teach through books of the Bible is if someone wanders in, we want to tell them what we actually believe and we want them to experience the scriptures that are full of hope, that can change your life. You know, as we were worshiping and singing, you know, just hallelujah, I, I just found myself thinking about Isaiah 6. And so Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes to church, and unbeknownst to him, he meets with God at church. And when he meets with God at church, what happens is he realizes he's not worthy to meet with God. And so if you're familiar with the story, he cries out, Lord, help me. I have unclean lips, and I'm from a people of unclean lips. You know, for Isaiah, who uh, was a public speaker, like for him to say, I have unclean lips, he's saying, the greatest thing about me, my best attribute is not near good enough. It's tainted and it's dirty. But what really caught me in my heart was what happened next. God didn't say, man, you are right. You ought to go like try to stitch together a couple weeks and get it together and then come back. He didn't say, man, you're right, get out. What he said was, you're right. And then he made quick atonement. An angel pulled out a coal and pressed it against his lips. And, you know, fire always depicts the judgment of God. And he was saying, hey, judgment will come and fall upon sin. But with the full picture of what we now have in the New Testament, what Isaiah saw from afar is this. The judgment of God can fall in, on Jesus in your place. God is quick to atone for our shortcomings because of Jesus. And that changes our lives. And then what he does is like, man, now there's some house rules, meaning like, man, we've got to set some guidelines of how we're supposed to react and act to one another. And if you've ever lived with someone, you know that you have to have some house rules or guidelines or somebody is going to die. And so you maybe experienced this growing up. Um, you had all kinds of things that were yours. And if your siblings touched them, it was like the wrath of God needs to fall now. Or you have roommates now, and if you have not established rules, if you want to keep those relationships, you need to establish some rules. Or you're married, and you need to establish some rules and guidelines that always have a loving smile and say, yes, I would love to clean that for you. But I was uh, in my super senior year, 
I had just moved out of the fraternity, the immature fraternity that I was a part of, and all of my uh, brothers that were also like in their senior, super senior year, they moved into a more mature house with us. It was smaller and it was more mature. And the very first thing we did was we used the dishwasher and we didn't have dishwasher soap. So in our maturity, we used just a little bit of Dawn dish soap. That doesn't work. I mean, all of a sudden, our mature, more mature, duly initiated uh, members of Lambda Chi Alpha who are extension campus, all of a sudden, that mature house looked like a house party we had once. I mean, suds were just everywhere. And so it was like, man, this is, like, adulting is hard. So we made a first rule, guideline, don't use Dawn soap in the dishwasher. But then we realized we had to have some other rules and guidelines because people seemed to want to eat and leave their dishes out and like magical like dish fairies would come and put them away. And so we came up with a rule and a guideline. If you left food out or your dishes out, we promptly returned that to you upon your pillow. And so you have nachos. This is actually the first fight in the house. We put your plate of nachos on your pillow so you would know that you need to put it up before you go to bed. And so we made some rules and some guidelines. And the rules and guidelines are ultimately that we might minister to one another and maintain relationship with one another, that we might know that there is something inside of us that is prone to leave our dishes out. Or as the people of God, that we would know that there's something inside of us that is prone to forget. Prone to wonder. Prone to become afraid and wonder what's going to happen and want to isolate and want to run and want to change. That there's something inside of us. And so what happens here... In Matthew 18, is Jesus has changed the direction of how he's been talking. So before this, he's been talking a lot to the masses. And so if you look at the first three teachings, big sections of teaching, this is now the fourth section. We're going to have one more section and then the, the passion of Christ. But as we look at these big sections, they've all been really outward, where it was the Beatitudes, the Sermon upon the Mount, where it was to the masses. And suddenly we had this shift. And it happened in Matthew 16, verse 21, when Jesus said, From that time on, the narrator, Matthew writes this in, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And so from that point on, what happens is Jesus turns from the masses and he looks to his disciples and he starts to prepare them because he says, something is coming and it's going to terrify you, but it has to come. Something is coming. And so he starts to build them up. And what we see in this major teaching session was all the interactions that Jesus had that we've been walking through several weeks are coming together and he's going to explain to us what is coming and what must happen because the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who has come, the Christ, the Messiah who has come, the promised King to deliver his people from sin, all of that is coming to head, but it has to go through the cross. And so he starts to build one another up. And he starts to say, this is who you need to be. This is how you get into the kingdom. And this is what you must be like in the new kingdom to interact with one another. And so another way to say it is, man, as a church, as God's people who come together to do life with one another, to encourage one another, to try to hold one another accountable, to hold out the word of life, 
Like why we do that, it tells us how to do it together. And so Jesus says that the only way for a church to survive is for supernatural turning in each individual. Something happens inside of our hearts. And then this otherworldly commitment toward one another. And so in this passage, we're going to look at two things. And so the first is what it takes to be a Christian. And man, I was actually even just reminded of this. Like, man, just a reminder over and over that we have to apply the gospel to our hearts of what it takes to be a Christian, of what God has done for us, and what is our part. So what it takes to be a Christian, that's verses 1 through 4. And then verses 5 through 14, what does Christian community look like? What must we commit to do? And so uh, let's, don't, let's don't play around. Let's hop in. So first, if you're taking notes, just Christian. What does it take to become a Christian? And it's going to say childlike humility. Coming to God with childlike humility. Like, like look at verse 1. Like disciples start to argue, who's the greatest? And so anytime you start arguing about who the greatest is, or you start boasting in your accomplishments, like what has to happen is pride is setting in. And so the solution to pride is you see it down in verse 4. And so it ends this section by saying, whoever humbles himself is the greatest. And so like this is about humility. What does it take to get into the kingdom of God? And it says, man, pride is a tricky tricky thing that just needs a moment to be birthed and to grow mature and to take over. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. Man, it's great. And so it's about um, Uncle Screwtape, who's a senior-raking demon, helping his uh, nephew, uh, Wormwood, who's a like entry-level demon. And what they do is they're attaching themselves to people to try to keep them from coming to Christ, to try to keep them, if they come to Christ, to keep them from growing. And so it's these... Uh, discourse back and forth where we write letters. And so what happens in, in the book is uh, Wormwood's uh, patient, you know, the guy he's trying to keep from coming to Christ, comes to Christ. And then, you know, what happens is they say, hey, there's still lots of things we can do to mess him up. We can get in his way. We can keep him from growing. We can keep him from being effective for the kingdom. There's so much that we can do. And then what happens is uh, his patience starts to actually change and to grow. And in one of the letters, it's like this, this red high alert alarm where it says, your patient is becoming humble and we have to stop that virtue. But it's actually pretty easy to stop it. And, and so listen to this quote. He says, all virtues are less formable, meaning they're not as powerful to us uh, once the man is aware that he has them. And so if, you're, if you do something generous and then all of a sudden you realize, hey man, that was like super generous. I should probably tell someone about that. All of a sudden that virtue is tainted. Or, or let's say like you respond with patience and kindness to someone and you're like, man, I am like a super awesome guy. More people should be like me. Like all of a sudden that virtue is diminished. But look what it says about humility. It says, but this is especially true of humility. Catch him at his moment when he is really poor in spirit. And so this part 
of Matthew be connected to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Catch him when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection by Jove. That's just an English people way of saying, wow. And so, wow, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. And then listen to this. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt to smother it, and so on, through as many stages as you please. And so like the spiritual warfare, when it comes around virtues, and especially when it comes around humility, man, there's so many ways that we become proud there's so many ways that we start to think, man, our justification is set up. And so this starts off with the disciples saying, who is the greatest? And Jesus saying, you must be humble to get into the kingdom of God. And so the question is, how does that happen? And, and so look at this in verse 1. Let's look at this. It says this, at that time. And it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And so two phrases I want to wrestle with. First is what sets off this teaching. It says, at that time. And this is one of the rare times that Matthew starts a teaching with a time designation. He usually starts it with saying, man, we were close to Capernaum or we were close to the Sea of Galilee. And this is like the kind of details that help you win arguments. Like, man, I, these are the kind of details that I lose arguments all the time because I think in terms of like more vagueness and Kinsey thinks in terms of she remembers everything to like the very, very letter. And so I'll re recount like, oh yeah, man, we talked about this and I said this and she's like, no, 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 no. You were standing here and you were wearing this and I was wearing that and I actually recorded it on my phone and I'm like, okay, I just, I, I lost. Jesus you know, when, when we're talking about the story of Jesus, Matthew is very careful to put in details to say when something happened or where it happened. And when we have this, it's only a couple times when it's a time designation. He's trying to draw us to something that's going on. And so at this time, at what time? Because what's going to happen is going to say, who is the greatest? And so what preceded this moment that led people to say, man, who is the best and the most powerful in the kingdom of God? And man, we actually see stuff. So if you look in Matthew 16, in Matthew 16, Peter had just declared, was just declared by Jesus to be the rock because he came out and said, you are the Christ, the one who has promised to come, who has come to save us from our sins, to rescue your people. And so that's a big moment. It's after a moment like that where you become aware of like, wow, I am doing so much better than the other 11. Like they didn't get nicknames like The Rock. Or, or it's after this, you know, Matthew 17, if you just look back. In verses 1 through 13, they just had the special camping trip where they went up on the mountain and Jesus changed before their eyes. And then they met with Moses and Elijah. And you know, Peter, James, and John would have been like, hey, Andrew, you didn't get that invite, but we did. We must be the greatest. Or look at the very end of chapter 17. Like We didn't really cover it. We're going to talk about it just a little bit. But you know, all of a sudden, Jesus is with Peter in the temple. And they, you know, the, the leaders come and say, hey, do you guys pay the temple tax? And if you recall or look at what happens is, you know, all of a sudden Jesus looks at Peter and says, who has to pay tax, the son of the king 
or the others. And, you know, Peter's like, I don't know, maybe the others. And then he sends him on a special fishing trip where he fishes and he gets the tax money out of a fish, which is a pretty cool thing. No one else went on the fishing trip. And so Peter might have been like, no, 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 I've got to be the greatest. And so all of these things speaking to pride of what I've accomplished and what I've done. And if you remember, right after they came off the mountain, Peter, James, and John came down and all the other disciples were failing. This is what, this is what Gary talked about. They couldn't get the job done. And so in these moments, there's evidence to say, no, 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 I'm better than you. And so they bring this question to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, man, we, we, I had the statement. I'm the rock. I went on the cool camping trip. I went on the awesome fishing trip. I was a fisher of fish, and then you made me a fisher of men, and now I'm just a fisher of money. Like, this is getting better and better. And so we start to look at evidence against one another to say, no, I'm more deserving. And so then the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, listen, every kingdom has some sort of hierarchy, like, or every nation has hierarchies. Like Within governments, there's a hierarchy. There's governors and lieutenant governors. There's presidents and vice presidents. There's sheriffs and there's deputies. Like There's some sort of hierarchy. In armies, there's hierarchies. There's generals. Like you, Every once in a while, you see them on TV. If you're actually in the army, you never meet one. But there's generals and there's privates. Families, there's hierarchies. There's parents who are supposed to be in charge, and there's kids who are like, why am I not in charge? Like, there's all kinds of hierarchies. There's hierarchies in the animal kingdom. You have apex predators, and you have gazelles, and the gazelles get eaten. It just happens. There's hierarchy. And so all of a sudden, the disciples are like, hey, if this new kingdom is coming, what will hierarchy look like? There's hierarchy among teams. You know, so uh, my, my, my soccer team... They wanted to be the Cobras, which I thought was pretty lame. Uh, so I changed their name to Cobra Kai's. And uh, some of them have seen the movie. And so on the sideline, they started chanting, strike first, strike hard. No mercy, no mercy, no. And I mean, they would just chant that. I'd be like, man, I'm worried. Like these people know I'm a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to intercept. At one point, they were like, they realized, oh man, we're undefeated. Like, hey, if I score a goal, they started practicing a routine dance. Like they're going to like sports center, da-na-na, da-na-na. And I was like, hey, anyone does a routine dance, they will not play again. And they're like, why? Because I don't like what's going on. It's scaring me. You wear pink bows and I'm afraid of you. And so we start to look for evidence and we start to say, no, 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 I'm better. I'm better. And so look how Jesus answers the idea of who is better in the kingdom. He says, you have to get in the kingdom first. Look at verse 2. It says, And calling to him a child, and so there's the kid around, brings him into the middle. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, for this moment, he called a child to the middle of the circle as an object lesson. And he pointed at the child and says, God is like a good father. Do you remember? I taught you to pray like that. How to pray? Our father who aren't in heaven. And if you want to get into the kingdom, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to become his son or daughter. And so there's some clues of how that happens. 
And so first, look, turn. Second, humble. And then third, become. And so verse three, it says, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, like to become a Christian, there has to be a turn in your life. There has to be, I'm going in one direction or I'm thinking a certain way and something in a moment or over time, like I realize like the way I think about things or the way I do things is now different. There has to be a, a turning. And so this idea goes exactly with the word of repentance, which is metanoia. And so it's the Greek word that is described most of the time in your Bible as repentance, but it's combining two words. And so first it's combining meta, which actually means after, but it means change because it's the after that comes after a change happens. And so it starts off with there's a changing and then noia, it, it, it means mind. And so repentance starts when something starts to happen to you and you start to push your mind in a direction that says, I need to agree with what God is saying. Sometimes repentance is on the physical level where it's like, man, I need to stop doing this and you seek accountability. But at some point, even if you don't feel repentant, at some point, the discipline of repentance, and it doesn't mean you earn it, but the discipline of repentance is you look at what the scriptures say, you look at the life of Jesus, and you start to say, okay, I'm going to agree with that. There's a change that happens. There's a changing of the way you think. To become a Christian, there has to be a, a turn. The, the disciples had a way of thinking how achievement happened or how growth happened or how they thought the kingdom of God would work. But Jesus, his kingdom is different. And he's saying, hey, listen, there has to be a turn unless you turn and then it goes on, and we'll skip down. And so look at verse 4. He says, you have to apply some sort of humility to yourself. And so you see that word humble, where it says to become a Christian, you must humble yourself. Whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so he says, there's something about children that we need to be more like. There's something in them that we need to be like them. And like if you look at verse 3, we're told to be like children. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to be like children in every way. It doesn't mean that when something happens, we just throw up our arms and we scream, that's not fair. Even though that's how a lot of my prayers sound. God, what are you doing? This isn't fair. It doesn't mean we're supposed to do anything and everything to not go to bed. Um, if you have small kids, man, the things that they will come up with to not go to bed, it's unbelievable. Um, Liv, our second daughter, man, she was by far the most creative at this, uh, but creative in the most obvious way. Like she just wouldn't want to sleep and she'd come down. And she'd be like, hey, I have a question. And we'd be like, okay, ask your question. And then she'd look around and she'd be like, what is this? And I was like, you were worried about the doorknob while you were in bed. You wanted to know about the doorknob. And one time she came down and she said, hey, I have a question. And we're like, okay, what's the question? And she was like, do you know the Muffin Man? We're like, the Muffin Man? Yes, the Muffin Man. And we had the whole discourse. And I was like, that was, that was keeping you up at night. Man, we're not to be like that, to say, man, things that we need, we want to dismiss and not do and not step in. And yet, man, I see in my life all the time, I refuse to rest because I feel like if I stop, the world will fall apart as if I can keep it together. You know, when it says we're supposed to be like children, it doesn't mean we're supposed to cross our arms and just ask why with every command. You know, when 
you know, the things you decide to do when you're a parent that don't work out. I decided at one point, it was when Cruz was starting to ask the question why, I was like, I'm not going to say because, I'm going to answer the question. And we started one car drive, and that why question kept coming. By the end of the car drive, it was because, because, that's all, it's just because. But yet, man, when I pray and things don't seem right, man, all I can ask is why, why, why? See, there's so many things that we find inside ourselves, but what does this mean to become childlike? And so I want to point at two things. It could mean so many more things. But, but the first thing, like, what does it mean to be childlike is I want to point at help and love. And so the first thing to be childlike is you are quick to ask for help when something starts to overload you or you are uncertain, like a small child, even if you made the mess and you are guilty of the mess and it is out of your control and you are warned about the mess that you just turn around and you put your arms up and you just say, help. And Jesus has already taught, pray like God is a good father who wants to help his kids. And so be like a child and be quick to ask for help. The second thing, be like a child, means trust that you are loved. Man, it's unbelievable. Like, I mean, kids can be super inconsiderate, can be super mess-making, and then in the moment that it doesn't work out and they are caught, they turn around and they ask for help because they are sure that they're loved enough that they'll get help. You know, the picture of the Bible as a whole is, man, you are loved and the cross of Jesus proves it. Turn and ask. I mean, this is so true that even in Romans 8, at the end of it, the question is, what can separate us from the love of God? And it goes through all the discourse. Can something above us or inside of us or around us, is there anything behind us or in front of us that can separate us from the love of God? And then the conclusion is, he who gave his son, what will he not give to us now? Man, look back in history and you see the death of Jesus and if you don't feel loved, look at that again and again and again and say, man, if God will not withhold his son, what will he withhold from me now and wait? And so the first thing we see is to become a Christian, there's a turning, like a changing of the way you think about things. And then there has to be a humility, an idea, man, I actually need help. I can't do this myself, but I can ask for help because I am loved. So something about the humility of a child that can mess everything up and then just turn and say, help. And then we see this in verse 3, a becoming where it says, to become a Christian, you must become a child of God. Verse 3, it says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is saying to be a citizen of the kingdom, you have to become a child of the king. You know, if you look back, Matthew 17, starting in verse 24, Jesus answered the question, all this is getting tied together and it points forward to what's going to be true after his death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit of God comes. He says in the temple when they need to pay a tax to be there, you know, Peter looks, or Jesus looks at Peter and says, who gets taxed to be in the kingdom? Sons or citizens? And Peter says, well, I guess citizens. He says, then the sons don't have to pay. But then what happens? 
Well, what happens is then he says, hey, go fish. I'm going to pay it for you. I'm going to provide the cost to get you into not just the kingdom, but into the household of God where you don't have to pay to stay. And so the gospel is laid out before us that Jesus has paid our bill. Like Jesus has come to pay your bill to make you a son or daughter. And then you live freely under the care and direction of God in the house of God, like a child. So when you mess up and need help, turn around and trust that you are loved and just say, help. Who is the greatest? That's the question. And Jesus says, let's talk about how to get in first. So are you trusting that you're in like a child and there's nothing that's going to expel you? You see, children don't get kicked out for bad behavior, but they do get disciplined to train up. And so are you a child of God? And so before we talk about the community of God, you have to ask the question, are you a child of God? Can you turn around and just say, help? So number one, Christian. How does someone become a Christian? And there's some sort of childlike humility that sets in. Uh, Number two, Christian community. How do Christians live together without killing one another? It's in the text. Uh, It says, we commit ourselves to be family. And so we're going to look at these words. We're going to see the words accept um, or uh, receive. Then we're going to see the idea of protecting as we deal with sin. And then we're going to see seeking, but we're going to say chase. And then we're going to say celebrating, but it's going to say rejoice. And so we see a pattern that we have to live in. And so the first thing is we accept one another. Look at verse 5. It says, whoever receives, that means accepts, one such child in my name receives me. And so within the church community, we need to fight for a constant accepting of one another. And that doesn't mean we don't ever say something's wrong. We're about to see that. There's a protection that has to happen. But it means that there is an embracing and an openness for people who are different or people who struggle or people who just need a little extra grace. I mean, there's all kinds of this. And he says, there's an accepting. And if you accept one who's difficult to accept, it's like you're accepting me. And so there's this correlation And so when we start to move, and now it's saying, like, you know, whoever receives one such child, like it's moving from the the object lesson of, like, this kid to, like, all believers are kind of childlike because we have to become like children, but we're kind of childlike in the worst ways. And so he's saying there's something about us that lacks power or there's something about us that lacks know-how to do what we need to do in situations. There's something about us that may not understand like my role and where I am. And sometimes I might step on toes and I might make messes and there has to be a receiving or an accepting of one another. You know, what can you expect when you receive a child in your home? Like you can expect less sleep, and you can expect more messes. You go to the hospital or you do a home birth if you're into that sort of thing. Kinsey tried to talk us into a home birth. And I'm like, man, it's just cheaper for us to go to the hospital because like, we just have to just sell the house right away. And so uh, you, know, you go to the hospital, you bring a baby home, man, this bundle of joy. You are so excited. And what do they do? They cry a lot. And they can't tell you what's wrong, and so you guess everything. And if you find something that works, but it was just happenstance, you bring that thing back over and over and over. What can you expect? Man, they eat your food. 
Like not at first, like they have to start on milk and then they grow to other stuff. But they grow up and they eat all your food. And so you come home thinking, man, that's in the refrigerator and it's gone. And they don't pay anything. What, what can you expect, man? They make messes and they don't pick them up because they see it as good for the household. And I see dysentery. I mean, I see threat. They make you play the pickup game as soon as they start to interact with you. Man, they just drop something and you are the slave to that game. You will pick it up over and over and over. And then they keep you at night by just saying, dad, entertain me all night long. And you will dance and you will do whatever just to entertain. They're horrible roommates. They're terrible. But man, there's an acceptance of them into your family because you see the potential of what they will be one day because there is an inherent value in them because they are created in the image of God. And so what do you do, man? You celebrate the smallest achievements. I mean, one of my favorite moments is when the kids, they kind of start pulling, crawl, crawling together, but they can only go in reverse. And so they look at something, and they start crawling, and they keep backing up. And they end up like backing themselves under the couch, and they're just stuck. They're trying to put it together, but what do you do? We celebrate that. You wouldn't celebrate your car if it only went in reverse, but we see momentum, and we celebrate it. There's an acceptance. And we celebrate every milestone and we lose account of all the failures that got us there. And there's something about the family of God that every step forward, man, we need to come and accept and celebrate. And so the first is there has to be an acceptance. That acceptance comes with pain. But this says, man, if you receive one of these little ones, and by this it means just all of us, if you receive one of these little ones, people who have less power, less know-how, people who are a little bit harder to love, Jesus says, it's like you're receiving me. Has Jesus done enough for us to make us lean into others? Is his, like, is his credit enough in our account? So there's this accepting, this receiving. But look at verse 6 it moves to like there's this protection of one another. Like we protect one another. Like that's what families do. Like we're supposed to protect the, the weaker one. Like, uh, like we're supposed to sacrifice for the smaller ones. Like would you respect me if I looked at my kids and I was like, man, you guys are going to need to get some jobs because I've got some dreams to follow. You know I mean? Like, like we expect to sacrifice. Or like you hear something in the middle of the night outside the door and it sounds scary. Like, what would you think of me if I sent our youngest Anna? Hey, go check that out. I mean, she's fierce, um, but that would be, it'd be wrong. But look how it tells us to protect one another. In verses six through nine, first, it tells us we must call sin wrong. Look at verse six. It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones, and so now it's just talking about other believers, that are childlike, and we're all childlike. That's how we get in. But whoever calls one of these little ones in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Like this is a warning that there's a danger just to justify your sin because that gets passed on to someone else who justifies your sin. And if we never call sin wrong, we create a culture that's just like, oh, it's just fine. Now, now, there's a danger of that, too, that we become legalistic. And, like, to be here, you got to be like this. But we come in childlike, and so there has to be an acceptance. But we have to just be honest about what is sin. Like, like the warning. And I, look at the warning. It says a great millstone. 
And so this is either the big boulder that's set out that you grind wheat on, or it's the smaller stone that you use to grind the wheat on top. Both are heavy. One is impossible. The other will kill you if you try to go swimming with it. And so the idea is, man, when we call sin okay, whether it's a giant stone that no one could pick up and you drown instantly, or whether it's like a bowling ball, how long are you going to tread water? And it's the idea of like, man, it will pull you down. You have to be honest about sin. It's not here to help you. It pleases for a moment, but its goal is to carry you away. The Bible describes it in Genesis as a crouching tiger that makes itself smaller It looks like it's not going to be a big threat, but it's crouching at your door wanting to consume you. And so the warning is like, man, whether it's the smaller stone, I mean, it says great millstone, so it's probably the bigger one, but even if it was the smaller one, sometimes we we minimize sin, like, oh, it's no big deal. And and we minimize, and we think we can swim with it. Uh, This was several years ago, but we were on the lake and uh, like we had a ball and it got like out of the boat and the wind was blowing it away. And so I was like, I'll go swim with it. No life jacket. And so I was swimming out to get it and I got it. And then I'm trying to swim back and it's getting harder. I feel like the wind's against me. And then I have this thought, man, what do people think about right before they drown? And then I'm like, they probably think about what do they think about right before they drown? And so like all of a sudden, like how long you think you can tread water carrying that weight? It's not as long as you think. And this seems to be saying like the sin that we say is okay, it wants to be passed on to others. And if we take that image of children again, like the fearful thing is the sins that you refuse to fight, they are left to devour your children. And so the first thing, we got to protect one another. We must call sin wrong. The second thing, verse 7, he just points out obvious, man, you're always going to be facing temptation. This world has so much temptation. You're never going to get to a place where you're like, it doesn't bother me. And so we must point out and fight temptation in the world. Verse 7, it says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And so it just means that, man, we are going to be tempted. Like in the Bible reading plan, 1 Peter 2, 11, we just covered it, but it also says something similar in verse 4, verse 2. It just says, man, we will be tempted by the passions of the flesh. You're just going to face them. Like there's not, you can grow stronger and more accountability and they can less hold on you, but man, all the days of your life, you're going to face them. They're in the world. They're in you. They pull. But we're also tempted to add extra rules and efforts to save ourselves. That's what Galatians is all about. And so there's going to be temptations in the world. The Bible is very honest about that. The third thing about protecting one another. And and so we, we need to call sin, sin. We need to know there's going to be temptation all around us. But then we must fight our own sin. Verses 8 through 9, it starts to treat sin like it's a cancer that will spread everywhere. And we have to deal with it severely. And so look at verse 8. It says, And if your hand or your foot uh, cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to you enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. And so Jesus is clearly speaking allegorically. And he's using some hyperbole, but he's saying we have to deal with sin seriously. It's malignant and it wants to spread. It's not happy just staying in one place. It gets in the bloodstream and it starts to flow not just in you, but to others. And so, man, for us to live as a community, like there has to be this acceptance. People who are limping, like bring in and embrace. There has to be this protection that we call sin, sin, that we know temptation's always going to be out there. And that means, you know, in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, all temptation is common to man. You know, it's saying that it's going to come up often and we're going to have to help people through it. But then it says, man, we have to fight our own sin and we have to fight it seriously. Because your sin's not going to stay where you tell it to stay. You know, the envy won't just stay in your dissatisfaction. It gets outside and starts to sour everything. Porn addictions won't just stay on the web browser. It wants to get out into real life. Sin is something that wants to consume you. But there's so much hope because you're a child of the king. And so we have to fight. Like this is saying like we can't be casual with our sin and then teach others to be casual about the same sin. Like I need you to fight for me. You need me to fight for you. We must fight. And so the things that we see come out, we have to have an acceptance and embracing of one another. We have to protect one another. And all that language comes down to how we think about sin, how we push people to the gospel, how we push them to hope. And then it says this in verse 10 through 12, we must chase one another. And so look at verse 10. It says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And so people who mess up. And so see that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of God who is in heaven. And there's a lot of debate about what this means. Does everyone have a guardian angel or not? Is the precious moment chapel, is it right? Are they in diapers and we all have one or not? Like, what does it mean? And I think it means this. If the angels in the court of heaven are dispatched by God to come after the little ones who stray away, because we're about to see that, how much more so should we be dispatched by God to care for little ones who stray away? And so this chasing after one another. And how do we do this? Man, we serve them by receiving them back. We, we protect them by calling sin, sin, and fighting our own sin so they don't learn to take sin casually. And then look at, if you notice, look at verse 12. You notice there's not a verse 11. Like sometimes people get super freaked out about this. Like, what are they trying to hide from me? Um, and then there's a conspiracy that these Bible translators are trying to remove, like all these things about God. The Bible translators, especially, we're looking at the ESV. I mean, you could apply that to the NIV, and you could apply that to NASB, and you could apply that to New King James Version, which uses majority text, which means it has a verse 11, which you shouldn't use majority text. You want to use critical text, which is the oldest text. That's another sermon. But what we're missing here, if you look down at the bottom of your page, you might have something that says this. 
that has this statement, verse 11, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. Sounds a lot like Mark 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. And so what probably happened was a Bible translator, scribe was writing this out, and he goes from this, that man, God dispatches his angels to save the lost. How much more should we go? And then look at verse 12. We're talking about leaving the 99 to go after the one. He's like, man, that's like what Jesus did. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so he just threw some parentheses up there. and It's like, hey, this is the title. And then it gets copied in. And so nothing is taken out. Nothing is lost because it brings us to verse 12 where it says, what do you think? And so Jesus saying, if the angels in the courts of heaven will seek little ones, what do you think about you? And then look at the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And so verse 11, that's down in the margins, Jesus came to save the lost. He came to seek the lost sheep. And so when someone runs as a community, Man, we're supposed to chase after them. See, and people usually run into sin or they run into isolation and there's supposed to be something about us that the Holy Spirit of God alerts us and we start to press into them because we love them. And so the picture is, man, leaving the many to get the one and then if we keep building this, so what is the community of Christians supposed to look like? There's an acceptance for one another that we just embrace and bring in, but not just anything. We, we, we also have to protect one another by calling sin, sin, by fighting sin in our lives, by warning each other about temptation. But then we also have to, you know, come around and chase one another. I'm prone to run. You're prone to run. And so we have to, as a body, chase one another to bring back. And then when they come back, verse 13 And if he finds it, the sheep that ran, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. We have to celebrate the return of one another. Like you see this cycle of what we're supposed to be like. We get in by becoming a child of the king and there's new house rules. And so now Jesus lays them down. This is what the house of God needs to look like. There needs to be something that we're like family, that we have the same father. So we start to reflect that father. And so God the Father, he came to accept us and embrace us. And so the gospel is you are accepted just like you are, but it will not leave you unchanged. And then there's a protection. The Holy Spirit of God settles in to help us to see sin as sin. But we have the ability now offer it to God and it's atoned for it already been atoned for and we can agree with God and so there's something that we have to do with one another we call sin sin and then we have to chase after one another and just be glad when someone you were chasing after returns you're back welcome back and then we end with this look at verse 14 just a summary statement but it points to what's coming And so verse 14 tells us about the heart of God and it points how our bill, you remember the tax bill, do sons pay the tax bill? And no, sons don't have to pay the tax bill. Everyone else has to pay the tax bill to get in. But something's about to happen. Something's about to change. And so verse 14 says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven 
that even one of these little ones should perish. And that's only possible because the one, Jesus, the only Son of God, who had all of God's pleasure, who lived a perfect life in our place, who never had to enter into this world to rescue or redeem us, it's only possible because the one did perish. Jesus perished in your place 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross to make you a Christian, to make you a child of God, to put you into a family, his family, the church family, to put you in a place where he will turn you into something more humble that just trust him in the moment that we grow more accustomed, not to try to do it ourselves or fix it ourselves, but we turn quickly and we just say, help. But he did it because he paid a debt. Jesus paid a debt he didn't have to pay to gain entrance to everyone else so they could be treated at him like sons and daughters of the king. There is nothing for you to pay. It's already been provided. So the questions kind of persist, like, man, am I acting like family? Is there a childlike faith that's growing that I see that I need to enforce because I'm so prone to wonder, am I running? Am I rejoicing when people come back? Even when those people hurt me, can I rejoice because Jesus certainly paid enough? And so we get to end the service, like every week, coming to a table. A table that everything has been provided for you because of what Jesus has done. And the only thing you bring is just like a kid who has something in his hand that he just broke. We just get to bring it. We get to say, help. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Lord, Man, I, gosh, we're about to enter into my favorite part of the week where we come to communion and the picture is whatever we have, we can bring. And there's all kinds of voices that tell us, man, we got to fix it. We got to be better. We don't deserve it. And all we need to do is like a child in our humility, just agree. I can't fix it. I've tried. I, I, I can't pay for it. It's already provided. It's already here. And we just come and then, Lord, I love when we end singing the doxology. Just our voices stand out and we declare something to be true that we didn't create and we can't do. And so, Lord, before we get there, we go through the body and the blood. And so we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. And we remember that his blood was spilt for us. And that paid the tax debt. The son that didn't have to pay it, it paid the tax debt so that we can have entrance into the kingdom and we owe nothing. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.